0: Next week, you may or may not know, uh, is the start of uh, the season of Advent. Uh, Advent throughout church history um, has been um, in the lead up to Christmas, the weeks where uh, Christians take time to set their anticipation, their expectation towards uh, Christmas. And in doing so, what we do is we kind of place ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites awaiting their Messiah, waiting for Jesus, waiting for the promised one to come who would bring Israel back from exile and into the kingdom of God. And so why we we do this is as we look at Christmas and we remember those Israelites waiting for their return from exile, we similarly look not towards uh, the manger, towards Jesus' first advent, his first arrival or first coming. We uh, look towards Jesus' second coming, his return, uh, where we, like the Israelites, are waiting for our return home from exile. We are awaiting for Jesus to come And make all things new, even in the midst of this exile experience of not being at home in this world. Uh, And and this is great uh, for us. And and, in two weeks, just to kind of set up where we're going to be for the next few weeks, we have, after this week, uh, one more uh, teaching in the book of 1 Peter. And then we're going to do three weeks um, as a little like Christmas series, uh, but more details on that because that is part of a larger year-and-a-half series uh, that we're going to be kicking off in just a couple of weeks. And so we'll talk about that more next week. Um, it's going to be really fun, but it's it's really good for us to, uh, I think, be in this passage today as we remember Advent and this idea of being in a place of exile, being in a place of not at-homeness, waiting to go home. Because in this passage, Peter is uh, dealing with this idea of suffering in the life of the Christian, this experience of, of suffering. Because, I mean, I mean, we all know this, when we experience pain, when you experience suffering, Normally, what that experience brings out is a uh, reflection or a thought that maybe I'm, I'm doing something wrong, right? So when you wake up in the morning and your back's all stiff, it's because you slept you slept wrong, right? Uh, pain normally is a response to the fact that we are doing something wrong or something that we shouldn't have. One of my earliest memories of pain, um, and I still have the scar to prove it, um, I had some friends over, I think it was like five or seven, And we really wanted to open the two liter of Coke in the kitchen, um, but mom didn't want us to drink Coke. And so mom wasn't in in the kitchen, though, at the time. And so what we figured out is here's the deal. Um, My friend Jordan, you're going to take the scissors, and I'm going to peel this little band off that's underneath the cap because that's the thing that holds it on. I was five, obviously, I wasn't that smart. Um, And so I'm holding the the, the band with my little thumb, little five year old thumb, and, and she comes in with the scissors. Uh, to try to cut the band, um, and then we go down. We go to the ER uh, <laughs> to make it short. And I remember, like, I'm I'm uh, driving. My mom's driving. I'm in the back of the minivan with a towel, and um, and I'm singing Kirk Franklin. If you know Kirk Franklin, it's gospel song. Uh, so I'm in the back seat crying, like sobbing through, like I know that I can make it. Like just like trying to like get to the ER. Uh, and so this pain, um, obviously, was I opened, uh, we were opening the two-liter wrong, right? So pain was the response of me doing stupid, right, or me doing something the wrong way. And that's how pain usually works, uh, is, is it's normally a response to the fact that we've done something wrong. What's, what Peter is doing, though, here is he's acknowledging there's a sort of suffering and a sort of pain, That Christians experience that does not come from us doing stupid or us doing sinful, but a sort of pain and experience of suffering that comes because we're on the right side of history, not the wrong side of history. Because we're doing the right thing, not because we're doing the wrong thing. And that this suffering is a participation in Jesus' life himself. Do you see what he wants to do here? So with that being said... Why don't we read uh, the passage that we have in front of us today, and then we'll begin to work our way through it. So if you'll look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 8. And so you want to turn your way there. We may not have the slide today, and so um, if you were planning on having the slides there, um, the Bibles, we have little loners in the back if you want to run and grab one of those. Um, or you can use um, your phone as well. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, we're going to read this. Um, And then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to just kind of unpack what it looks like he's doing here. So 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Well, he writes, Finally, all of you, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let them keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And God's ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against all who do evil. Now, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, sure, right? Are you with me? Is, we'll get here. Just You have to acknowledge, what is Peter talking about? Keep going. Um, in which they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, all having been subjected to him. So since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, they've ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do: living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge, the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though the judge in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles or the wisdom of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, set ourselves underneath Peter's words here. Um, Aspects of this, um, God, are so confusing. We're not sure what he's calling us to. Some of these are so explicit. We know exactly what he's saying, and yet we don't want to hear that because we know exactly what he's saying. Uh, Father, we sit... underneath uh, your word here, we ask that you would allow it to shape the way that we view our world and ourselves and that through it, we might become the sort of people who walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the example that he left us, uh, this way of suffering that leads to victory. God, I pray that you would specifically speak through me that as uh, Peter ends this passage here, that those of us who have been gifted and sent to teach, that we might do so with uh, the oracles, the wisdom of God, that you might speak through this. Father, that all of us, we might just see what the Bible, what your word is doing here, what Peter's doing here, what your spirit speaking through Peter to us today is doing here for us. In name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, to begin in understanding uh, what's going on within this passage, over the past few weeks, you might have noticed how, uh, time and again, if you just look back over through the book, what Peter is doing is as he calls Christians into a specific sort, way, a way of living as Christians as he's doing that, he will pause right in the middle and almost sandwich all those commands around this kind of weird, he just starts talking about Jesus. So last week, he's talking about suffering, and he's talking about slavery, and then down here, he talks about our marriages, and right in the middle, he places this thing about Jesus, or back in the beginning. I mean, if you track through it, you can look back at the very um, beginning of the, uh, in the book, in chapter 1, in verses 19 through 21 where he's talking about what it means, our identity as the people of God, and he pauses and talks about the identity of Jesus and who he is, how he's been foreknown by God the Father, manifest for us in these times. He links our identity, who you and me are, in the identity of who Jesus is. Last week in chapter 2, in verses 21 through 25, he grounds our experience of, of suffering, of subversive submission, this way of being silent in the midst of actually subverting and turning over things, he grounds that in Jesus' crucifixion. When we move into chapter 3, he's going to do the same thing. He's giving commands for how to follow Jesus with this little thing in the middle about Jesus and what he's done and who he is. This week, not about his identity, not about his crucifixion, but about his resurrection and ascension. He's doing this cool work where he's actually preaching the whole story of the gospel by connecting it to what it means to follow this Jesus. And so this week he's dealing with resurrection and ascension. But as you might have gathered, Jesus is coming back from the dead, him ascending into heaven, this language. Uh, Peter does this in, in, in an interesting way, uh, to say the least. Uh, this language of going and proclaiming spirits that are in prison, connection to like the days of Noah, all of this going on, and then somehow this is connected to baptism. All of this going on is what has led most um, Bible nerds and Bible scholars, they would rate 1 Peter 3, what we're looking at today, as one of, if not the most difficult passage in the New Testament to understand. Um, So I have a lot cut out for me today. Um, Like last week when we had another big text with a lot going on, uh, Erin this week was reading over the text and she looked over at me and she's like, why did you do this again? Um, And that was because I'm a glutton for punishment. No, um... Here's why, is oftentimes when we go through a letter like Peter, something that was read in one sitting. Back in the day, the churches that that got this letter, Peter, the letter was written in one sitting. Everybody sat down, 1 Peter 1 to chapter 5, they read the whole thing. And so you could watch the flow of what Peter was thinking through. Oftentimes in churches, when we preach through the Bible, which I think we should do verse by verse, when we, sometimes for the sake of time, we do these smaller blocks and we can lose the forest for the specific tree that we're looking at. And so like last week and this week this strange stuff that Peter's getting into is part of the larger fr- like frame that he's given around what it means to obey Jesus in the midst of suffering that that middle piece is the key for the rest of it does that does that make sense hopefully a little bit but that that key is a very interesting key. Like I said, um, most difficult in the New Testament. Uh, There are some sermon series, I'll listen to other preachers and like, how do they handle this text? And kind of just see what they do. There are sermon series where this text is missing. They just, they skipped over it. Like, and then in the week before they were like, or the week after they were like, you might notice that we're jumping down to chapter four. That's because I don't know what's going on in 18 through 22. Um, And so I don't want to do that. But even then, scholars, commentaries, these books that are just getting into the original language of what this was written in, uh, so many of them basically go, this is beautiful. We have no idea what he's saying. Uh, One of those commentators actually did the the math of looking at all the different ways that we can translate this passage, and there's 180 options for us. Um, It's just crazy. Now, as a side pastoral note, when when I talk about this, for some of us here, that can lead you to being... um, afraid or fearful how can we really even trust the bible right do you feel that maybe a little bit it's like wait a minute 180 options bible nerds don't even know what's going on what um i would just say the the exception proves the rule that this is one of if not the and what's crazy is throughout the rest of the bible we never really have this problem every now and then you'll have little ones that are difficult that everybody kind of tries to figure out But the exception proves the rule that the Bible is so trustworthy and consistent, and actually with with smart guys that know Greek and know Hebrew, we're able to get a really reliable English translation of what's going on here. Every now and then, very rarely, it gets a little bit messy. And when it gets messy, that's confusing for us, but also so grounding that the rest of the thing is actually really, really trustworthy, right? That We're not doing this with every single thing. Things are falling out of my Bible. Um, I, I hope that makes sense. I just, I don't want this to be, I want to acknowledge this is difficult, while at the same time, I don't want you to walk away going, well, we can't know anything about what the Bible's actually saying, right? That the rest of the Bible is, is so consistent, and 99%, I mean, it's insane, the science behind what's going on here, how trustworthy this thing is. Um, but there's 180 options with this text. So I've been thinking through how do we do this, I mean, you guys were enjoying turkey this week, and I was just like, you know, gravy, like going over everything, and in my mind, I'm like, imprisoned spirits, like what the heck, like eating my feelings, right? Um, And so uh, working on this, I mean, even while we were driving home, trying to figure out how do we do this in a way where, basically, I don't want this to be an hour-long lecture with you guys, right, where we're like, the Greek word here, and so here's what we're going to do. Do we have the slides back now? Okay, here's what I want to show you guys, and then we'll get into it, and hopefully it'll go quick, okay? Okay. All right, so look, if you look with me, right in the middle, it seems as though Peter is sandwiching and building up to this middle section about the, the Jesus stuff there, that he suffered and he raised, that he died once for sins. That's the, the, the middle thing, the most crucial piece. And then outside of it, he's sandwiched these corresponding pieces. So if you notice, at the very, very beginning and the very, very end of the passage, both of those are loaded with commands for the whole community— That if you go and you can circle the language of love, the, the language of prayers, that there's a consistent theme. That on the very outside, the beginning and the end, he's talking about love and prayers. If you highlight those, you'll see, boom, connects. And then you move in. The next segment is he's dealing with our suffering. He talks about how when we're reviled, we don't revile, but we bless, right? That it might be God's will. If you highlight God's will, and then again, down in the second segment, after he talks about Jesus, he talks about the will of God and suffering again. So you kind of have this cool little, the, 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 the Bible geek name is, a, it's a chiasm, but you don't need to, there's, no, there's no test. The whole point is, Peter is building this way of uh, building out the text in so that all of your attention gets drawn to the middle, And it highlights the the other components that he's hitting on. So he begins and ends with our community, a community of love. And then he moves into our experience with suffering and how the key to understand those things lies in the Jesus story. You guys tracking? Hopefully a little bit. Hopefully it'll make sense as we work through if you're not so far. And I'm sorry, it's Peter's fault. When we get to heaven, this isn't Ryan's fault. (laughs) This is Peter's fault. Um, So if we track through those, we'll kind of see those. So what I want to do is I want to give most of our time today to the center of where Peter places the big emphasis on, that Jesus story there in the middle, when he talks about what Jesus went through, the Noah stuff, the baptism stuff. And then we'll kind of quick, then we'll go into the application that he gives on our suffering and then us as a community. Does that make sense, where we're going to go? Okay, I'm sorry, let's go. Um, So jump back with me to verse uh, 18. In verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ... For Christ, like I said, Peter again and again is grounding the Christian life not in us trying to be anything, but in the fact of what Christ has already done. All of that language about suffering and love that we're going to get to, that all is based around for Christ, what Christ has done. Specifically, what has he done? For Christ has suffered once for sins. He's talking about Jesus' life, his trial, his death on the cross, Death and suffering not for his sins, but for your and my sins. This is the good news of the gospel, at least one component of it, that though you and I have wreaked havoc and suffering on ourselves and on our world, Jesus, God, entered into our suffering and suffered in our suffering so that he might do what? He might make those of us that are unrighteous, righteous. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous, this trade-off, that those who are unrighteous and broken and wreak havoc and suffering on themselves and one another might through this death somehow have now a life where they are known as righteous. And as he continues, he says, be brought to God. That they might be saved knowing God, knowing the life that God gives, the transformation, the joy that God gives. And this happens as he is put to death, it says, in the flesh. Specifically, not just his suffering, but his death on the cross. Now, up to this point, thumbs up, right? We're agreeing with everything here. We hear this every single week, right? Woo, Jesus died for sins. Because of what God has done in Jesus, I can be known and seen by God as righteous and that I might have God and his life. Thumbs up. It's awesome. Um, And then, like, you know, you start feeling turbulence in the plane, right? As you get in the next thing, where he says, made alive in the Spirit. Okay, what do you mean by that, Peter? Made alive in the Spirit. So, made alive, what, in, in the Spirit? Holy Spirit? Was this resurrection language? Or made alive in the spirit, is it meant to be, is he talking about the kind of in-between state? Is he talking about Saturday? He died on Friday, bodily raised on Sunday. Is he talking about this kind of non-bodily existence of Jesus on Saturday, right? So what's he talking about in spirit? Um, I would lean towards, um, I don't know what I lean towards. Uh, I, Peter is reflecting on the fact that Jesus has experienced death and yet now he's in a place where not just has he died, but he's in a place to do something. What does he do? He continues in verse 19. Where he was made alive in the spirit and in this, from this place he proclaimed. It's this word for preaching. In the Greek that he writes in, it's this Greek word caruso, not uh, euangelizomai. Uh, now, why does that matter? There is a preaching that is caruso, proclamation of something. Euangelizo is where we get the word evangelism, Okay. So there's two types of preaching in the Bible. Why is it not you and Galitza? Why does that matter is because some might wanna read this passage and see that this is Jesus going to hell and preaching a get out of hell free card. Like on Saturday, Jesus died. He went down into hell and said, hey, you guys get a second chance, right? It's me. Does anybody wanna come? And they're all like, yes. And he's like, all right, come with me, right? Here we go. That um, that's not the sort of proclamation that Jesus is doing. His is one of a, a proclamation, not like an evangel- It's not a Billy Graham revival in hell, Okay. Uh, and so he does this proclamation. Who's he preaching to? Spirits in prison. Okay, if we felt the turbulence, now the fasten the seatbelt light comes on, right? Because we're going. Okay, what's what spirits? <laughs> what prison? Are you guys tracking with me? What are we talking about here? Um, okay, so spirits in prison. Um, spirits. Okay, is he talking about humans? Not likely. Uh, throughout the New Testament, this word here for spirits is not used. Um, rarely, I can think of one or two where it's used to talk about a human disembodied state. Most of the time, this word for spirit, pneuma, is uh, the word that we use to talk about the Holy Spirit or like angelic spiritual beings, right? Ooh, now it's getting really weird, right? Okay, so what's going on? He's going and he's proclaiming to these spirits, but specifically these spirits that are in this state of imprisonment. And these spirits that are in why are they in prison? Because in verse 20, they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. Okay, now the oxygen masks have dropped, <laughs> going through. Um, okay, so what's going on here? I think that as confused as we are, Peter's original audience was too, which is why in his second letter, I think he got a bunch of correspondence where they're like, what the heck were you talking about, Peter? Um, and so in 2 Peter 2, he writes this, um, where he writes, uh, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, there's that prison language, of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, there's Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and I think he's keeps going, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and suffering and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this is his second letter, a few years after he writes this, where I literally think Peter wrote this and just like we're confused, all of these churches, he just got all of this mail that was just like, what are you talking about, dude? And this is him going, okay, this is kind of what I'm getting at. Now, what this moves into then is him connecting these spirits that didn't obey in the days of Noah. Genesis 6 is where the story of Noah picks up. Right before that, you can go read about one of the, another crazy story in the Bible. Where it talks about these spiritual beings, these sons of God is what they're called, who uh, came down, fallen angels, and basically they married women um, and had like weird hybrid spiritual uh, human baby things um, that were called the Nephilim, the giants. You guys thought you weren't going to get this, did you, when you came to church today? Um, and, and, and so this crazy offspring is that then where this goes to is that now we go into the, the, the rabbit trail that we're not going to go of extra biblical writings where we can get into like first Enoch and like all this craziness of what Peter might be thinking about where demons come from and all that kind of stuff. Here's, here's the big thing is what Peter wants to read into us is that we do not live in and Jesus' victory is not limited to only the physical realm. Um, But that actually what was going on in Jesus' cross, his death, and his resurrection, and even in the mystery that is Holy Saturday, in between his death and his resurrection, Jesus is victorious over the spiritual realm as well. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, right? That's Ryan's take. (laughs) Um, I reserve the right to change it in a few years or even later today. Um, But I think that that's what's going on mainly because that's... um, a framework and an idea that shows up throughout the rest of the New Testament. I mean, Revelation 1.18 is this incredible where the resurrected Jesus appears to, the, to John, his apostle, and he says, fear not, I died and behold, I'm alive forever. And I have the keys to death and Hades. I think what Peter's talking about is that something either through his resurrection or on Saturday when he was dead, Jesus being made alive in the spirit, whatever we wanna make of that, um, took the keys to death and Hades from, from fallen spiritual beings, the devil and demons, and kind of Nana, na-na-na-na-boo-boo, boo, I won, might drop, and Jesus like goes back to, is, is resurrected now. I think that's genuinely this victory that he's getting at. As Jesus is saying, what's up, I won. To all, not just human, but all spiritual powers. And then he connects this to Noah in baptism, where he connects the, the story of the Christian to the story of Noah. The story of of us as exiles to Noah and his experience where uh, Noah was and his family, they were a, a righteous minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers who were mocked and reviled for their obedience to God in building the ark, right? Noah, he witnessed to those around him Right, in the midst of building his ark, Noah realized that judgment was coming and was trying to call people to, to trust themselves to this, this salvation that God had given them. Noah and his family were, were saved through these waters, through this flood. They went into the ark and the judgment of God fell and because they were inside the ark, they were safe. I think what Peter is trying to do is, in connecting this to baptism is for those of us who have been baptized into Jesus through the water immersion, this sacrament, this sacred thing, it's like we with Noah have gone into the ark. And now when God's judgment comes, we, we are safe. And, it's, and so there's the same water image. Noah, they were in the boat with the waters. We go into the baptismal waters, right? And in the participation within Jesus' story of his death and his resurrection, that it's, it's like our ark. And, and that's, that's the, the dynamic of what I think is, is going on here. Um Let's take a deep breath. Um, Let's keep going. Um, So he continues now talking about this baptism as this um, being within the Noah story that actually is us being in Jesus's story. And he talks about baptism now is not what saves us as a religious right. What he says is it's not just you going into the water and now you've been cleaned. So now you don't have to like live a holy life anymore. But he says that it's an appeal. It's a pledge of a good conscience. I am in on this Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I, I am, the, he is my life, and now my life is his. I think the closest correspondence we have of this pledge of allegiance that he does is, is an oath of allegiance, which uh, Lorenzo is probably gonna have to take uh, within the next year or so when he becomes an actual American citizen. <laughs> um, so here's, here's what it is. Um, an oath of allegiance. Uh, this is what uh, Lorenzo's gonna have to say. You can throw it on the slide, uh, the oath of allegiance here. Um, Lorenzo's gonna have to say this. Um, this this is basically what baptism is, but for Jesus. Um, when we get in the waters, we hereby declare on oath that I absolutely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentiate state, or sovereignty. For us, it's the spiritual powers, right? Uh, that we were following after, the ones that Jesus took the keys from and said, "Nana, na na boo boo I won. So we renounce them, particularly too, and then there's a specific, almost like a repentance of the nation that we were specifically coming from. So he's going to have to renounce Canada, right? And in the same way, baptism is, I'm renouncing my allegiance to all other gods, all other things and idols that I've chased after over my life. And for baptism, there should be almost a, particularly this has been one of the main idols for me, that I've been too subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith. Isn't that crazy? faith, um, we keep going, and allegiance to the same, It's a whole sermon there, uh, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation, a good conscience or purpose of evasion, so help me God, an acknowledgement whereof I have here unto affixed my signature. The, the closest thing that we have to a baptism, baptism today, I think, is an oath of allegiance, is I'm renouncing my participation in all foreign and domestic powers, and I am placing my faith and allegiance fully in Jesus and in who he is. And so I will give my life to him and to his way, his church and his word. Uh, That's our first and primary allegiance. And so the oath is the closest thing that we have to it. And so what Peter is saying is that baptism, for those of us who have made our allegiance to Jesus, our allegiance is the one who's victorious over all things. And so regardless of what our experience is, that though like Noah, we may be mocked and reviled, which is where he's about to go, we're on the right side of history as much as we may not feel that way which is exactly where he goes into the, the, the finishing um, kind of pieces here. So the next two pieces is, is that's the Jesus thing, the best that we can do with, with Peter there. And then we go out into our suffering with the, the segment right before it and right after it. Look with me in verse one of chapter four, where he says, be, remember in, in verse 10, he said, for Christ suffered once for sins. And he gets into the Jesus story, what Jesus has done for us. At the beginning of chapter four, he says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, So one was for Christ, now it's since Christ suffered in the flesh. And since he suffered, he calls us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what's the way of thinking for Jesus? One that would rather suffer than sin. One that would rather give full allegiance to God regardless of what the world might bring against it. And that's where he gets into verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4 where he talks about us abstaining and holding ourselves back from these sins and passions of this crazy sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and drinking games and like lawless idolatry. And he says that when we as Christians walk the way of the exile and follow Jesus in, uh, in not going down these sorts of things, Peter says you're going to be maligned by the people of your city. And this is the sort of suffering that he's been talking about. That when we hear suffering, we tend to think persecution. We tend to think those who've been martyred by by ISIS because of their allegiance to Jesus. And that's absolutely part of this. But in this passage, he's dealing far more with the suffering that comes through this language of being uh, maligned, of being reviled, of uh, being slandered. It's talking about the verbal suffering that comes through the social context of the relationships that we have. He doesn't use the normal words for persecution. They don't show up in 1 Peter of like physical persecution. Most often what shows up are verbal shaming, slander, uh, disparaging people, insulting people, verbal abuse. And he says these sorts of things happen because you refuse to participate in the ways of what he calls debauchery that everybody else is going down. Now, why would they vilify and slander Christians for not participating in these? It's not the same as just basically going, you know, Greg became, you know, a Christian and now he doesn't go bar hopping with us or go to like our weekly orgy or whatever. And like, oh, man, um, from a Roman perspective, uh, for, for Christians, these uh, friends and family members who began to follow the way of Jesus, this was more than just not going bar hopping anymore. This was them breaking the ancestral traditions and worship that was handed down to them since time immemorial. You know, Saturnalia and the Bacchus festival, Bacchus festivals, where worship of the gods was done through these orgies that he's talking about and these drinking festivals, that this was how you worshiped and you appeased the gods of the day. And so the exclusivity of this new religion that came up out of, uh, you know, this backwater Jerusalem you know these people that are following after this Jewish Messiah who was crucified and and an arrogant refusal to participate in the ways of worship of our city was not just something that was like that's too bad for them that they're missing out on it for them it was don't you understand the wrath of the gods is going to fall on our city because you're not participating in appeasing the gods you're risking the gods coming down on us and so if you're risking that from the gods then you are definitely getting that from people and so what he's saying is this is why people are maligning you and talking poorly of you. It's not just that you're not coming to the you know the, the drinking party and, and playing beer pong with us. It's you are not worshiping our gods, and, and because of that, you are endangering our city. Because our society and our city works off the gods of our city, and you need to appease them and serve them. And so this is where this maligning came. We have examples of this where... Um, Knowing Christians would call uh, Christians as incestuous um, because they referred to their wives as a sister in the faith, right? Because we are all brothers and sisters in relationship of what Jesus has done through adoption. And so because of the fact that they caught that, they go, oh, incest. Your wife is your sister, right? And they pin that on them. Uh, they called them uh, cannibals because we, we talk about having uh, the body and blood of Jesus in our Lord's Supper. It's for them, they were doing the same thing. And so people would go, don't you know they eat, they eat people there? Last week, we talked about how they were adopting babies that were being left out, and the argument that many made was that it was the babies they were adopting off the streets that they were eating in the meals. So this, there's this whole thing that they're coming across as these crazy barbarian pagans and uh, because of the fact that they don't want to participate in the gods of the city. Um, they were called atheists because they wouldn't worship the gods of the city. It's crazy that Christians were called atheists. Um, and so what first Peter, he's trying to, what Peter's doing here in... Um, Five and six, he draws into this idea of, uh, but they will, not, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He reminds Christians that because of what we just looked at, the victory that Jesus has over all things, you don't need to be worried about the judgment of the gods, but rather it's those that malign you that need to be worried about the judgment of God. Do you see that? Of just kind of how he's developing these themes here, he's going, they malign you because they won't wor- you, you won't worship their gods, and so because of it, you might be worried their gods are gonna come after me. And Peter's going, it's not you that needs to be worried, it's actually them. That you as the minority, because you are connected to the resurrected Messiah whose overall things, you're not the one that needs to be worried, it's them. And, and we experience this, I mean, this continues today, is that as Christians refuse to participate in the gods of our culture, we receive backlash for it. For them, it was you know Bacchus and Saturn and Caesar I would argue that that today it's not that these gods, these spiritual beings that work within the world have left. It's just that they've rebranded themselves. That what's going on is is that we have now these gods of individualism and sexuality and consumerism and nationalism and and digital addiction and careerism, that the gods have just, they're still playing the, the strings, but they're just doing it in a little more hidden way. And as we refuse to participate or even consider these gods as legitimate, it involves pushback. This can be all the way to martyrdom, like in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't bow to the statue of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and so you know, they get tossed in the fire. Um, and then this, this fourth person shows up with them in the fire um, and saves them. It's this incredible story. But for us, more often than not, it doesn't come through the sword, but a, um, this, this schism and social divides and these pushbacks that we feel when we refuse to participate or acknowledge the gods of our city. So when we refuse to place all of our uh, hope in political systems, that what gets labeled against us is that we're actually um, complicit in injustice, right? Because you're not all up in arms about it like I am. The thing is, is that it's not maybe I'm taking too much hope in this. It's that you're complicit in injustice, right? They're placing the ultimate hope for justice in the political system. Similarly... um, When we refuse to sacrifice our bodies on the altar of either a relationship or just simply for pleasure, we get labeled as being regressive or repressive, right? So you see, this is the sort of dynamic that Peter's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, people going, this is what we think um, uh, about work or something like that. And everybody disagrees and there's swords coming out. It's just, it's it's a way of maligning and going, actually, what you're standing for is not something that's righteous, but something that's wrong. People that, uh, we have a huge um, digital um, addiction and worship that happens with the devices in our pockets and the altars where we sacrifice our days and our time to them. Um, I remember my my wife, we had a friend that got incredibly frustrated um, with my wife and mad at her because she didn't know what we did that weekend, um, because we just, we, we didn't have our phones out, <laughs> because we're like, we should take a break from our devices that are like tethered to us all the time, uh, once a week, and we had this friend that got all frustrated and angry with us, and I'm, I'm just going, maybe the issue is we didn't post, maybe the issue is that you've been, you've been uh, set within a system of which your whole way of seeing the world is built around what's digitally happening in front of a screen. You see, these, these, these ways that simply keep happening, or even slavery to work, where you're not willing to work weekends time and time and time again. And the issue isn't, maybe you have a priority over your family and over worship, but maybe you don't care about our business. Maybe you don't care about our company. You don't care about me. See, we have these ways of in going through this. I remember reading a story of a real estate agent. She lost, um, it started with a promotion, but then eventually her job, because the common practice for real estate agents was to fudge the numbers on a listing, you go super low, get people in there, and you go, oh, it looks like that was a typo. This is actually what it is after you've got them emotionally invested in the house. Um, it works. Um, and for her, as a Christian, she said, I'm not going to behave in this sort of way. I'm not going to lie, right? And so it cost her a promotion, and it ended up losing. She lost her job because of it. This is the sort of, this. it's not swords and guns and beheadings, but it's just the ambient suffering and dis, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ordered way of being in a world that, that seems to be running contrary to the Jesus who's actually reigning over all things. So he calls us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, that, that we enter into that, and that when cursed or reviled or maligned, when we don't get the promotion, when we're called as regressive because of our sexual ethic, when we're called as whatever because of whatever, he calls us into a pathway of non-retaliation. One where it's actually not non-retaliation, it's actually a, a retaliation with blessing. If you go back into the beginning of chapter three, where he talks about this, where he says that when you're reviled, you don't revile. You don't give evil when people do evil, but you bless. That you bless. Again, so they use evil words against you, and we speak good ones to them. And this builds up specifically in verses uh, 10 and 12, where he quotes from Psalm 34, calling for us to be peacemakers and good doers. And then in 13 and 17, that even though people malign us for our allegiance to the king who reigns over all, that actually from this place, as we bless them and are persecuted anyway, Peter hopes that we can subvert, like last week, that we might bring redemption, that we may be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. And so sometimes people lean into this being about like apologetics or philosophy of like, we need to be ready to give a defense. And so you need to be able to, to, you know, give a, a huge explanation for why the resurrection is a verifiable historical fact or something like that, which, I mean, is fun to do, but and is worthwhile. But I think that most likely what Peter's getting at is he's simply calling for people when you have hope in the midst of all of culture seemingly hating you, that you have this hope that doesn't go anywhere and people go, why is that? And you can go back to 18 through 22, or maybe another passage that isn't as confusing, and go, because I, I believe that although I may feel like I'm on the wrong side of history, although I may feel as though the co- that I, I'm doing something to br- wrong to get this pain and this suffering, in fact, because of the resurrection, because of who Jesus is, I'm on the right side of history. And so I have a hope that all things are working together for my good. And so he calls for us to have a reason for our hope. So here he's built... This idea of because of the victory of Jesus over all things, we can endure all things. And then then he goes into the fact that in order to do this, we have to be living in life as a community, is that you cannot walk the exile road alone. It it might be a small remnant in a large city like like Los Angeles, but it has to be a community. And so that's where at the beginning of verse 8 in chapter 3 and verses 7 through 10 of verse 4, he builds around these communal commands of how we live our lives as an exiled people going through suffering, but putting our eyes on Jesus. In verse 8, he calls for all of you, which means all of you, <laughs> everyone. And This sort of life can't be lived alone. He calls for us to have unity of mind. We're thinking the same way about the world. He calls for us to have sympathy, to feel, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, that in the midst of losing jobs or being maligned by family members, that we have a community that weeps with us in the midst of the pain. He calls for us to have brotherly love. And then, <laughs> he calls for us to have a tender heart. Uh, in the Greek that he's writing in, uh, it's, it's literally uh, to have good bowels. <laughs> it's, it's just like, what in the world? So, and then we get into this. In, in, the, in Greek thought, your emotions uh, were not um, in your heart, which is weird that we say that. Like, we think your heart, you have emotion, like, oh, I felt it in my heart. Your heart does nothing but pump blood. We, we, I guess we all think it's up here now. But for them, there's even science now to back up that so much of our emotion is carried in our, in our gut. And so he's actually more right than I think we were for a handful of generations. And so to have a tender heart is to have good bowels that we're able to feel with those that are around us. And so next time you're in discipleship group, you're just like, I just need you to have good bowels right now. I need you to suffer this with me. He calls for us to have a humble mind. that We're a humble people. You see, he's just building up the sort of community that's able to weather the storms of suffering as we await the return of our victorious king. In four, seven through 10 of chapter, uh, of seven through 10 in chapter four, he calls for us to be the sort of people that are so built around prayer that we control ourselves and we're sober-minded so that nothing gets in the way of our prayers. He talks about us loving one another. This is so that we might cover over one another's sins. And this is not, simply and like that are somehow when we love each other that we atone for each other's sins and this is not um that we just forgive and everything gets off the hook um but one one guy talked about it this way is that when you live in a house with kids that there's legos everywhere when you step on a lego um it's like the fifth level of hell um and he says but when you cover it with a blanket you can walk over the legos and it's and and it's not there you know they're still there but it's not that bad (laughs) And he says that love has this ability to cover over the faults and the sins of one another, not that they don't get dealt with, but with a blanket where we're able to walk through life with one another and forgive, uh, even though we maybe haven't had the conversation yet where one apologizes and one uh, forgives, that we're able to withstand and, and walk through this stuff with one another. This is how community works. This is the sort of community that in the midst of everybody maligning and reviling in a culture that seems to say you're on the wrong side of history, that you're wrong about this and that's why you're going through this, that the church is a place where we're loving one another, we're with one another, we're committed to one another, we're arm in arm looking forward and following our resurrected and victorious king. He then commands us to hospitality without grumbling, which any of you who ever hosted a neighborhood dinner or <laughs> you know what that's like, um, he says that, that we with with joy welcome one another into our homes. And then he says, serving one another with our gifts. is, At at Collective, we see that we use this language of being responsible stewards. That the things that God has given us, we responsibly utilize for the sake of one another. And so he gives these, these two gifts of either for serving one another or for teaching, and that we do so as if we're teaching the wisdom of God, and we do so as if we're doing it from the strength of God. So all of this is built around this community that loves one another and is serving one another and welcoming one another and praying for one another. And then in verse 11 is where he ends and he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the whole existence of a community that's living life together, going through suffering as they follow in the pathway of the victorious King Jesus, who he himself went into suffering so that he might go to victory that as we do this, this is the sort of community that exists for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. One that is shaped by Jesus' victory and made by his victory, that we are a people bought by his precious blood. He, God saved us to be this sort of a community, this counter-cultural microcosm of the kingdom of God as though out there in that world, everybody's biting at each other's heels and they're speaking evil of one another, that when you spend some time with the community of faith, with the people of Jesus, it's almost like you're in a different world for a minute. It's like heaven is here on earth. And so glory is given to God as, as we set our eyes on Jesus and we embark on lives that look like Jesus's, where like Jesus went through life and was reviled and maligned, where he was beaten and scorned and even murdered, but all of that was done for the sake of love so that he might enter into suffering and rise to glory, that we watch Jesus do that for us and then we walk in his example like we saw last week. And as we do this, like I said, we we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. That this is actually what victory looks like. Culture says that, that, that power is the means towards victory. And Jesus sets before us one where it's not power, and it's not playing the victim card so we can get power, but it's a humble vulnerability where we're going to be who God has called us to be, and we'll, we'll take the cost at whatever that might be, because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And this is how Jesus became the one that's victorious over all things. And so why would anything less be what he calls us to? Let's pray.